I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil. Saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away. And the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Thank you for that, Liz. That is a long text. Appreciate you. Ever walk up to the pulpit ready to preach and forget your Bible? <clears throat> but that is a long passage. And I hope you... Uh, I hope you this morning appreciate the, the awkwardness of God's word and that sometimes it, it, it feels different, it, it feels distant, maybe even sometimes irrelevant to uh, what's being talked about, but it is relevant, it is important, it just sometimes it takes a little work on our part to understand how and that's, that's okay. We can read through the Bible and gain an understanding of who God is and, and come to a saving recognition of the resurrected Christ as the Lord Jesus. But we can also spend our entire lives pouring through the pages of Scripture and, and never quite reach the depths of the pools of wisdom contained within. God has divinely and, and miraculously preserved the Bible as a communicative tool of his to speak to each and every generation. 
It spoke to cultures and people that have long since disappeared. It, it will speak to a new people and new languages yet ahead that will look unfathomably different than what we know today. So as we mature, as we grow, as we listen to more sermons, as we participate in more Bible studies and procure for ourselves study helps to read the Bible, and we can learn things, how to read it. We can learn things like literary genres, tools that the authors, the biblical authors used even within Scripture to, to differentiate between this type of writing and that type of writing. And what we've got in our text today is an example of what's called dispensation prophecy. It's where a, a, an argument is, is posed of two different sides, that there's a, a choice to be made, a, a judgment called, a, a truth to be discerned as the right path. It does this by way of asking a series of questions and then offering a conclusion and finally giving a lesson. If you notice in verse 2 here in Isaiah 41, which is where we're at, if you have not done so already, please feel free to turn there in your Bible, Isaiah 41. But here in verse 2 through 4, there's a series of questions with the conclusion also being in the latter portion of verse 4. And then verses 5 through 20 are lessons learned from that conclusion. Something else we also can learn through studying on how to read the Bible is historical context. What's going on in the world when a message is given can alter the meaning of that message. If a, a pastor was to have preached on peace in the early 1990s, he was probably making reference to the Middle East conflict surrounding the Kuwaiti oil fires. But if he spoke of peace in 2020, he undoubtedly had something other on his mind than the Middle East conflict. So when we read things like coastlands and the right hand of God and a, a threshing sledge, it takes some historical understanding to figure out what truth is being communicated here. If you take a look at the, the sermon title screen back here, you'll, you'll notice a couple things. One is that it's not very clever. I've done better work. The other, maybe more importantly, is that we have over here some splotches of color along the sea, and then over here on the east, a couple splotches of color over there. What we have here is, listen to me in silence, O coastlands, and I will stir up one from the east. Isaiah is not simply being poetic and drawing attention to actual events but he's bringing attention to actual events, places, and people. Isaiah is preaching and prophesying about what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. So one more interpretive tool I would like to highlight for us today is literary context. This is probably what some of you have heard thrown around in accusatory tones as someone has taken scripture out of context. And it's a, it's a big no-no not only regarding uh, the interpretation of Scripture, but the interpretation of your spouse, your children, your co-workers, 
politicians, you name it. Listening to only a portion of what someone says can alter your perception of what they're actually trying to communicate. So in uh, the spirit of contextual placement, as we look here at Isaiah 41, I also want to draw our attention to Isaiah 2, 12 through 14, and Isaiah 60, 13 through 15, as these will be helpful in our time today in God's word. Isaiah chapter 2. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against the uplifted hills. And then Isaiah 60. For the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine. To beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. So with all that in mind, uh, we're looking at this first portion of Isaiah 41 and how the righteous right hand is behind and before all things. So as we're looking together to, and move back through this text in Isaiah 41, I want to let you know that I'm going to be reading from the NLT version, the New Living Translation. And if, if I could take a sidebar here, If you really want to study a passage of Scripture, you should read the passage multiple times and read it in various versions, as each has strengths the others do not. There are essentially three types of translations that would be helpful to use. There's the word-for-word that focuses on maintaining with as much rigid precision as possible with the original order of the translated words. This is extremely helpful when it comes to reading passages that are very dependent on words like to and for and with. Examples of these versions are the ESV, which we regularly use in our reading, the New King James or the New American Standard Bible. There's also dynamic equivalents or idiom for idiom translations, which they still hold to the original word order, but they take a little more liberty when they're looking at phrases and how to interpret them. For instance, if we're taking English and translating that into another language and we're looking to translate the phrase, throw out the baby with the bathwater, it might actually be better to translate that, not word for word, but to take the phrase as a whole and translate that in an interpretation. Examples of these are the NLT and the NIV. And then there's paraphrases like the Phillips and the Message. The strengths of these versions are that the emotive thrust of Scripture is preserved by focusing more on how it's using the contemporary verbiage. The problem is that if you approach Scripture dogmatically and you're only reading from a paraphrased Bible, you're going to end up teaching some very mm, wrong stuff. But likewise, conversely even, if your dogma does not contain the emotive thrust of scripture, nor give room for the illustrative or imaginative elements contained within those literary structures of the biblical writers, 
then you're likewise missing out on elements that are inspired by God's Spirit. So yeah, any serious student of the Bible is going to consult various translations. An example of why, or maybe even how that looks, is, is right here in our passage today in Isaiah 41. We can look at verse 1 at the very tail end of verse 1. We've got several, several things listed here. We can go ahead and put them on the screen and we'll read through these. The Tanakh, which is the uh, Hebrew Bible, it's what we would call our Old Testament. The end of, verse 40, end of verse 1 there says, let us come forward together for argument. The Central Standard Bible says, let's come together for the trial. The ESV, let us together draw near for judgment. The NASB, let us come together for judgment. The NIV, let us meet together at the place of judgment. And the Lexham English Bible, let us draw near together for judgment. And finally, the message, say what's on your heart. Together, let's decide what's right. Now, if we simply read the message, we might be tempted to think that Isaiah is encouraging us to determine truth for ourselves. But if we simply read the ESV, we might be tempted to think that Isaiah is telling us all to come to God to be judged. But reading several versions, we can see this idea of a trial with an argument being set forth where we are to assess what the presented case is and what is right. And this fits right in with disputation prophecy. So like I said, today, I'm, as we go back through, I'll be reading from the NLT, and let's get started with that, shall we? Isaiah 41, verse 1. Listen in silence before me, you lands beyond the sea. Bring your strong arguments. Come now and speak. The court is ready for your case. Who has stirred up this king from the east, rightly calling him to God's service? Who gives this man victory over many nations and permits him to trample their kings underfoot? With his sword, he reduces armies to dust. With his bow, he scatters them like chaff before the wind. He chases them away and goes on safely, though he is walking over unfamiliar ground. Who has done such mighty deeds, summoning each new generation from the beginning of time? It is I, the Lord, the first and the last. I alone am he. Harvest Decatur, this is our first point this morning. The righteous right hand is the first and last to work. First and last to work. First to set in motion, last to resolve. First to throw, last to catch. First to give, last to take. First to stir up a king from the east. If you remember on that map a little bit earlier, we just had up. Uh, there were the, the coastlands on the west, and these two nations represented in the east. In the east was the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And both historically have come up against the Jewish nations as opposition. An interesting description of this army from the east is in verse 3. He chases them away and goes on safely, though he is walking over unfamiliar ground. This is one of those verses that can be translated a few different ways. One is that this army is new and that it has not made this trek in battle before as it's traveling on paths its feet have not trod. The other is as if this army effortlessly defeats its enemies and that it hardly touches the path with its feet. Like in the movie Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon, 
where as they fight, they do this air walking. And, and I would I'd display that for you today, but I haven't quite limbered up yet. So we'll have to save that one for later. Or if you're more familiar with Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy and the, and, and the, the, the final movie there where the ghost army comes out and starts sweeping across and taking out everybody. It's they just, they just move untouched and unfazed and taking out everybody. So which, which is it? Is it that this army is new? Or is it that you know, this, this opposition that they're facing is, is beyond compare? Chances are it's, it's both given this ambiguity of it. So it could very well mean both. And Isaiah does, he does look to paint a picture of an army that is untouchable. It says, with his sword, he reduces armies to dust. With his bow, he scatters them like chaff before the wind. He chases them away and goes on safely. So we've never fought against an opposition like this before. We, we've never fought against someone so untouchable How does one defend against such opposition? How are people to stand against an enemy that is beyond their capability to face front on? How do we do that, Harvesticator? How do we stand against corporations that control banking policies whereby banks can simply change their records so funds post on different times when they actually receive to create opportunities for fines? How can we go against governing agencies that are so entrenched in party politics that the people's will becomes nothing more than rhetoric? What can we do when a boss is able to submit documentation that misrepresents dialogue to back up fabricated stories of reports concerning his own need for self-approval and any objection that is raised is simply characterized as noncompliance or insubordination? What do we do against such untouchable opposition? Isaiah's disputation prophecy here is setting up two arguments on how to properly relate and understand the such things. His questions of who stirred up this army in the east, it drives to the conclusion, it is I, the Lord, the first and the last, I alone am he. So to see this other argument, we can... Look back at verse 5. Join with me. The lands beyond the sea watch in fear. Remote lands tremble and mobilize for war. The idol makers encourage one another, saying to each other, Be strong! The carver encourages the goldsmith, and the molder helps at the anvil. Good, they say. It's coming along fine. Carefully they join the parts together, then fasten the thing in place so it won't fall over. It could seem that these people are preparing for war with all this talk of work at the anvil and molding and crafting metal work. It could seem that they need to call for, to fight against this untouchable opposition. They must meet fire with fire, crafting longer and sharper swords, constructing more powerful bows that can launch arrows at the enemy. Developing and making broader and sturder shields so they can stand and say, this is Sparta. But no, that's, that's not the case. Not even the incorrect view that's being put forth by Isaiah is saying that they need to fight more. 
the NLT, among other translations, it points to what's being crafted here is not more weapons, but idols. If you have an ESV, take a look at verse 7 where it says, strengthen it with nails so that it can be moved. The other argument is not a need for broad shields, but a firm brad to hold up the idol. The two arguments being posed here is one of the righteous right hand moving and directing human affairs and the narrative of history, and the other is, is a force exerted through human effort to craft mechanics of power and influence. Is it because of idol worship that, that makes this army so strong? Or is it because of the righteous right hand is looking to redeem and refine his people? You know, if we're honest with each other, we oftentimes see the mechanics of power at work and we think we need to craft some idols ourselves. Divorce is high. Marriage is denigrated. And so we think we need to uphold and uplift the family. But then the sports schedule, the vacation time, the parental instruction, it all begins to revolve around making the family life look right making the family resemble life's ultimate goodness. We then sacrifice our commitment to live missionally in God's purpose so as to have a family that is happy. We sacrifice God's will for our lives to live as disciples of Christ so we can be a family man or be a good mom. And sadly, we teach our kids more about idol worship than the gospel. And when we're not looking, the whole thing falls over. We try to fight idols with idols, attempting to encourage one another to stand strong and say, yes, this is what's good. What else do we see? Declining morals in our society, governmental overreach, violence, and destruction. Our world does not need the church to make more idols. It needs the righteous right hand, the one who is first and last to work. Church, are we holding in our hands idols or are we being held in the hand of God? Do we see God moving, God orchestrating, God working as the first and last? Or are we over here putting our security and trust in finances, education, political agendas, ideological arguments boxed in by human reason, thinking these things or what we need. These things will help change history. These things will help craft our narratives. These will give me what I need for the good life. Isaiah says the righteous right hand of God is behind and before all things. He also tells us not to fear. Not to fear these power structures like the coastlands are. He shares God's message to fear not, for the Lord has chosen us. Look back with me, starting at verse 8. But as for you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, my chosen one, descended from Abraham, my friend, I have called you back from the ends of the earth, saying, You are my servant, for I have chosen you and will not throw you away. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. 
I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. It's interesting here that the lesson we are to learn from this disputation prophecy is that God is on our side. The same God we are told to fear tells us to fear not. The righteous right hand is one that first, is first and last to work, but also is one that helps and holds up. The righteous right hand is one that helps and holds up. That is our second point this morning. And these words are echoed throughout the New Testament. Jesus said, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will wear, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And Peter taught as well, and we'll get into this in the summer as our, our elder sermon series, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Because of this explicit language of chosen in the New Testament that applies to us, applies to the church, we can take direct encouragement here from Isaiah. Fear not, for I am with you. Even when faced with the untouchable opposition that God has allowed to alter the course of history to accomplish his will. Even when faced with the, the chaos that swirls about us, we can know that God strengthens us. In fact, this is, this is God's speciality to bring beauty from chaos. You spend much time reading and meditating on the creation account in Genesis 1. You'll see how God creates order and goodness out of chaos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering on the face of the waters. Picture it. Water without molecular order of covalent bonds floating in a, a gravitational void as, as matter materialized and dematerialized. And then God made light and with it energy. And he set the moon and the stars into motion and he created seasons. And he called out of this chaotic water, dry land, and he put life in the sea. And he created animals and bugs and livestock. And then he created humans to further cultivate beauty as God saw fit. If God can bring order and beauty out of the chaos of the universe, how much more so can he with the chaos that is in our lives? The righteous right hand is one that helps and holds up. Look back with me again in verse 11. See all your angry enemies lie there, confused and humiliated. Anyone who opposes you will die and come to nothing. You will look in vain for those who tried to conquer you. Those who attack you will come to nothing. For I hold you by your right hand, I, the Lord your God, and I say to you, do not be afraid. I am here to help you. Though, yeah, I am here to help you. Forty-four times the Assyrians are mentioned in the first 38 chapters of Isaiah. The remaining 12 chapters, not even once. 
Isaiah says, look, your enemies are, are gone. The Lord has defeated them. The Lord has risen up this army in the east Babylon to take them out. This nation that does not fear God nor worships him as Lord is said in Jeremiah to be God's servant. And God used this servant to put an end to those attacking and oppressing his people. But God also is going to use this servant to redeem and refine his people. Since they all together have forgotten to worship Yahweh and have given themselves to other gods and idols. The Assyrians were destroyed, but Babylon is coming. You know, some of us, we can share stories of victory over alcohol that ravaged our lives in the pursuit of escape. The righteous right hand laid waste that oppressor. But the battle's not over. Babylon is coming. Some of us can share stories of victory over pornographic tainted delusions of desire. The righteous right hand laid waste to that oppressor in our lives. But Babylon's coming. Some of us can share stories over victory of self-righteous gossip, manipulations and control, indifference and apathetic coasting. Some of us can even share stories of how God has thwarted a very real and physical, mental, and personally abusive oppression of others in our lives. The righteous right hand has annihilated that oppression. But the battle's not over. Babylon is coming. Yet fear not. God says to you this morning, Harvest Decatur, I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you for I am your God. The righteous right hand is the first and last to work. Is one that helps and upholds. And lastly this morning is one that rescues and restores. The righteous right hand is one that rescues and restores. Let's look back at our text in verse 14. Though you are a lowly worm, O Jacob, don't be afraid, people of Israel, for I will help you. I am the Lord, your Redeemer. I am the Holy One of Israel. You will be a new threshing instrument with many sharp teeth. You will tear your enemies apart, making chaff of mountains. You will toss them into the air, and the wind will blow them all the way. A whirlwind will scatter them. Then you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. I'm feeling that awkwardness. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say, this is awkward. Yeah. And those of you, you know, participating online and engaging in our worship there, text in the chat. This is awkward. So what's going on here is some of that historical and literary context with a a cherry on top of imagery and metaphor. We read earlier in Isaiah 2, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. And against all the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, 
And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. Isaiah's message against the mountains and the hills has to do with the prideful and the lofty and with the idols. Those human crafted symbols of power and control. In ancient times, the high places such as mountains and and hills, they were used for worship. Therefore, these places of worship dedicated to the power structures of humanity that run contrary to God's truth, contrary to God's presence, contrary to God's provision are what will be destroyed. Isaiah is saying here in chapter 41 that God will make us agents that will destroy and remove arguments built against the knowledge of God. And we know now, maybe, maybe even a little better than what Isaiah's readers knew, that our enemies are not those who make the idols, as we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wage war against the idols themselves. Okay, but what of this instrument? This threshing sledge with sharp teeth. This was a device used to separate a kernel of seed from the fibrous casing called the chaff. They would have a slab of wood outfitted with stones or chunks of metal that could either hinge and and, and tampen it or just be drug over the top of it. And it would break off the chaff and it being much lighter would then just blow away in the air. Isaiah says the Lord will make his people a power to demolish these high places, these idols, these spiritual forces of evil. And the imagery he does this is with the comparison of a worm crawling on the ground in the dirt, eating dirt, with that of the threshing tool that destroys mountains. Harvest Decatur, though at times we may seem small and insignificant, in this world like a worm eating dirt. But the Holy One dwelling in us, the Spirit of God that makes us His temple, will turn us into devourer of mountains. The idols and ideologies that set themselves up against the Creator of all and enslave humanity to chase after lesser rewards are no match for the righteous right hand. God's desire then is for us to partner with Him in this mission of rescue and restore, to free the captives that are demoralized and demonized by these idols. But we don't do this through military strength. We don't do this through nation building. We don't do this through a show of aggression. Rather, the meek shall inherit the earth. We do this through a submission to the one who is behind and before all things. So Harvest Decatur, even in the face of untouchable opposition, we continue, all of us, to preach, pray, worship, and tell others about the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. The righteous right hand is one that rescues and restores. And he does this, indeed, through spiritual means, but that does not mean that it is also not physical. The idols of our world have physical representations in societal power structures, in art, educational institutions, not to mention the various religious symbolisms. And Isaiah is very much interested in discussing these physical representations of the spiritual realities at work. 
which why it's, it's important for us to pay attention to these trees he mentioned in chapter 2 and then brought to mind again in chapter 60. Look with us in verse 17 to see him here. When the poor and the needy search for water and there is none, and their tongues are parched from thirst, then I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will never abandon them. I will open up rivers for them on high plateaus. I will give them fountains of water in the valleys. I will fill the desert with pools of water. Rivers fed by springs will flow across parched ground. And I will plant trees in the barren desert. Cedar, acacia, myrtle, olive, cypress, fir, and pine. I'm doing this so all who see this miracle will understand what it means. That it is the Lord who has done this. The Holy One of Israel who created it. We saw in chapter 2 that these trees were used for crafting idols, for setting up altars of high places. But here we see God is going to use these trees to make a garden in the desert. And in chapter 60, when Isaiah is describing a time very similar to John's description in Revelation about a city whose light is the Lord, he says that God will plant these trees once used for pagan purposes to honor and glorify his name. He will bring in structures like ships and streets that were once used for the commerce of human trafficking and repurpose them for the display of justice and peace. So when it seems that not only we are small and insignificant, but feels as if we have been forgotten, when our tongues are parched with thirst, we can take comfort in knowing that a day is coming when Babylon too will be no more that the Lord will establish a city of everlasting peace where celebration and joy will be around every corner and we will no longer mourn the tragedy perpetuated by human hands. For Jesus, our Lord, our God, will have rescued and restored us and refined from our hearts any inclination towards disobedience. We will finally obtain what Eve stretched out to take with her hand and be like God in a way of his choosing, not our own. We will be remade to be like him in his glorious body. And our submission to the creator as his image bearers, as his representatives, will be perfected through the perfection of Christ. This is our hope. And this is our comfort now in the face of tragedy, in the face of sufferings, in the face of an untouchable opposition. But our hope, our comfort of heaven, it doesn't give us an opportunity to be lazy, to be apathetic, to, to view the events here and now as having no consequence. No, eternity is in the balance. Jesus said not to store up treasures here on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven our God desires us to work for Christ, to create, to cultivate, to build things that will last through the judgment. God has commanded us a long time ago to fill the earth and subdue it. This command is still very much in the heart of God when Christ told his followers to make disciples of every nationality, teaching them to obey everything he taught them, to multiply to fill this space of life with objects of redeeming love, mechanisms of God-honoring beauty, plans and programs of creative justice. Richard Mao, in his book, When the Kings Come Marching In, 
as he's discussing Isaiah's prophecy of heaven and noting why the ships of Tarshish are there, he states this point this way. But we must, first of all, allow this knowledge to shape the basic attitudes and expectations that we bring to our wrestling with the practical questions. We must train ourselves to look at the world of commerce and art and recreation and education and technology and confess that all this filling belongs to God. And then we must engage in the difficult business of finding patterns of cultural involvement that are consistent with this confession. I'm sure you have heard many times, as I have, that we cannot take our belongings to heaven. And this is true. Your possessions, my possessions, they will not last. But it is unbiblical to think that the work we put forth here on earth is of no eternal value. Harvest Decatur, the Spirit of God resides in us, bringing forth the redemptive work of Christ so that the ships we build and the trees we plant will one day be used by God to fill heaven. God will take what we crafted in the dim light of our understanding of his glory and he will create an oasis of splendor. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come on back up as we consider a few last thoughts. The righteous right hand is before and behind all things. The righteous right hand, is a, it's a phrase of victory, specifically victory in and by God. And we can get sideways on how victory against opponents to the church comes, how victory against opponents to the Christian faith is procured. We can think that it, it solely depends on God in the sense of removing any type of responsibility we have to sit down and twiddle our thumbs waiting for Jesus to come back. We can think that it's some sort of half-and-half half work where we do our part and he does his part. We can get sideways in thinking that it, God moves only in what we put forth ourselves. But each of these statements, it, it, it comes from a faulty, dualistic view of God and a misunderstanding of spirituality. Isaiah paints a picture here of God moving through the physical realities of our world to bring about his ultimately good purposes. God's capability is, is far beyond anything we can grasp. And he, he certainly doesn't need us out of any lack in himself. Yet when it comes to affairs on the earth, his preference is that we're involved. He has revealed himself in scriptures that are both divine and human in their authorship. He has revealed himself in Jesus who is both God and man and he works in us, in us human beings through his spirit so that we too are marked by the divine and marked by the human. Our victory can be just as miraculous as these trees planted in the oasis. But it is not by our own hand in which they are planted. Our hands must be redeemed by the pierced hands of Christ. Jesus is our victory over death and is now our victory over the idols we have crafted. He is our righteous right hand. Harvest Decatur, let us worship him.